Is there anything worse for an unpublished writer than hearing the sound of a publishing gravy train passing by without being on board yourself? It's a sentiment wholly unknown to King of the New Nature writers Robert McFarlane, who's not just riding the gravy train, but shoveling coal into its fiery belly and making it go all at the same time. The New Nature Writing. The New Nature Writing. The New Nature Writing. No matter how you say it, there's no avoiding it. You can't help falling over the stuff in the local water stones, where they have these little knee-high display tables by the doors. The books are piled up like the Himalayas, and bestraddling the summit of every one is Robert McFarlane. It's a publishing bonanza that recalls the great colouring book goldmine of 2016, when children's colouring books got rebranded as adult mindfulness retreats. In 2015, everything had been wild. So, swimming outdoors became wild swimming. Micturating on the hard shoulder of the M25 was wild toileting, and pets who strayed too far from home got labelled as wild life. And now we have the new nature writing, hawking its wares like a cheap nymph in bosky stilettos and earnestly described lipstick, most likely iridescent green. So why had nature writing got itself rebranded as new? Had our relationship to writing about nature really changed as fundamentally as all that? The humanities scholar Timothy Morton seems to think so. He sees nature with a capital N as an outmoded notion. There is no nature over there, all pristine and green. And over here, man and industry and iPhones and oil rigs and those long wooden paddles you use to stir your coffee with. Yeah, Morton's a bit of a lister. It's all nature with a small end for him. We are it, and so is our oil and our cotton socks and the Fisher-Price record players which the hipsters have co-opted into their gimmickry. He was a man who I could get on board with. An unnatural nature writer. Someone who scoffs at signs instructing people to please keep to the footpath to protect nature, as if you, a human being, were somehow not a part of that nature. Nature doesn't stop and start at specific delimited points. How have we become so abstracted from nature with a capital N that we no longer consider ourselves a part of it? But nobody wants to read about that, as the shelves and display tables heaving with new nature writing in Waterstones demonstrates. They want to pretend that nature with a capital N starts over there and want regular field reports, but in a modern, accessible style. Hence, the new nature writing. And at the top of every pile is Macfarlane, king of the new nature writers bestraddling the genre like a, a sequoia, king of trees, but a walking, talking one. So, an ent, then. Yet, for all his much-publicised love of nature, you never hear Robert McFarlane rhapsodising about the most curious vegetation of all, hedgepawn, do you? Oi, McFarlane, what? Never seen a discarded copy of Knave dissipating in the wintry scythe of Yon Hoarfrost. Never seen a copy of Razzle 
all a scurf neath yon anvil-browed cumulonimbus. Never watched as the glamour model's capacious bust was bleached all through the swallow-thronged summer by the separating clasp of sunbeams and raindrops. Like all instances of predatory capitalism, a once open field has quickly become crowded with the molehills of activity as every publisher looks to burrow into the fertile soil and drill its nutrient-rich geology as dry as Theresa May's tear ducts. Those who come to the feast late find the bones have been picked clean. They must now plough a different furrow. These pioneers we shall refer to as the double N, double W, A. New nature writers with attitude. A hardcore group of hedge botherers. These folk marvelled at the highways and byways overlooked by the first wave of new nature writers. Which of them sings of the bottles of driver tizer scattered liberally along the grass verges, veritable files of unholy water micturated in urgency? It bespeaks a postmodern pastoral, a deep orange offering to the gods of motorway traffic flow. Which of the poets has composed an ode to the small plastic bags filled with dog excrement? a folk offering to placate the great tree beastie from striking in woodlands across the newly natural land. These outre writers put an S in that grave new era, the Anthropocene, seeing man's impact on the planet as one more literary scene to surf. Still, this was preferable to the dark side of naturalism, the tree fetishists the ones who wanted to give trees more than just a hug. David Bellamy was a textbook example of this so-called dark botany. So depraved did his flora bothering become that his beard was actually a hand-cultivated species of moss. He was no longer content to just fondle it. He now had to be attached to it 24-7. But the depths of botanical depravity only reached its nadir in 2011 with the arrest of Bunce Watkins. Since 1977, Watkins had garnered notoriety and a millionaire lifestyle for dressing up as an oak tree on his long-running BBC4 show, Bountiful, which had brought tree spotting to the masses. He had just been commissioned to record a spin-off series, Lithe of Limb, when police found indecent images of saplings on his hard drive. After that, Watkins disappeared from the BBC faster than you could say yew tree. Macfarlane, though, was the first to take anthro-vegetal relations to the next level and propose marriage to a tree. The intimations had long been there of such a relationship sprouting. There was that weird bit in The Wild Places when a grown man climbs a tree. Listen to this passage from page 5. In the course of my climbing, I had learned to discriminate between tree species. I liked the lithe springiness of the silver birch, the alder, and the young cherry. I avoided pines, brittle branches, callous bark, and plains. And I found that the horse chestnut, with its limbless lower trunk and prickly foot, but also its tremendous canopy, offered the tree climber both a difficulty and 
an incentive. Then there was a tweet about a fable by Italo Calvino. Imagine taking to the trees and staying there. On Calvino's The Baron in the Trees, a book I'd love to fill. Where would this rough love of bark on skin all end? The offspring of such a coupling makes one shudder, unless one has seen the Ents in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. In which case you think, you know, after five pints, I could see myself having a pop. Macfarlane's writing began to obsess over the minutiae of ancient lore and poetry. Here he is, waxing arboreal from a recent blog post. The cracked bolus was dank with bosky ages. I crept inside this tree church's nail, mistook the sighs and creaks of bark songs for a bosky cantata. The Anglo-Saxons called this bark song Jokai, the cries of wood nymphs trapped inside and suffocating over centuries. Anyway, it all boded ill, as ill as that song about a willow in Hamlet, and is believed to have finally culminated in a marriage proposal to an elm one autumn in a Cambridgeshire wood. But I digress. My own contribution to the new nature writing came at the tail end of this publishing extravaganza when all the best landscape features had been bagged. Typical. Wilderness or lack thereof? Checked. Fields? Done. Seasons? Taken. Weather types? Pissed all over. Thus I was forced to improvise, which could well explain why a year in a puddle has yet to make it to the shelves and table displays of new nature writing at your local Waterstones. I found my puddle on the road about a hundred yards from my house, opposite the local oldie. It was a pretty classic puddle, a few feet in circumference and about ten inches deep at its deepest point. It was taking in some much needed nutrients from what looked like a fairly fresh dog turd and the remnants of a Friday night vomitus. The fact it was right next to a key A road heading into Sheffield might seem to pose some problems to other new nature writers, especially in terms of environmental disturbance. But I didn't sweat it. This was raw, urban new nature writing. This was new nature writing with attitude. Any passers-by were welcome to step to me and try to check my flow, or else they could participate in my hardcore nature observations. We could. I stood a while to marvel at my puddle, a landscape feature that was about to dominate my life for the next 12 months. The summer sun played upon its surface to coruscating effect. Is this what Franz Liszt had experienced at Lake Wallenstadt, I wondered, on his Anne de Pellerinage to Switzerland, a sentiment he eventually gave voice to in exquisite piano homage. Well, I was similarly in awe. And then I saw them. The nymphs at play, diving off the dog turd into the sparkling waters below. Others were floating on their backs using leaves as lilos. With a golden glint in the depths below from a submerged crunchy bar wrapper, 
It was like beholding the opening of Dasseline Gold. All that was missing was that E-flat major chord. At sunset, a group of tadpoles wriggled into view and introduced a different vibe into the puddlescape. More of a loungy, cocktail-supping, pool-party vibe. Café Del Mar before the morons got there. It seemed as if the tadpoles and water nymphs had achieved a sort of paradise on earth, and it was all taking place in my puddle. The next day I observed yet more fauna, a blue tit taking a bath, swallows swooping down to gather loam for nest building, and several species of butterflies who found this concocted microhabitat perfect for mud paddling. And whilst it could easily seem as if all these entomological facts had come from a quick perusal of a Wikipedia page on puddle fauna, the author, that is, me, assures you that this was definitely not the case. Spring fell into summer. The frogs skipped off for deeper waters. In their absence, the dog turd had proved a biological boon, hosting several generations of a green bottle family who feasted on any new detritus that found its way into the water, such as the half-eaten kebab that now formed an island in its centre. Yes, verily, these were boom times in the puddles here. But trouble forever looms on the horizon for a puddle, however large or small. Even here, on an A-road leading into Sheffield opposite Aldi, the summer droughts can be deadly for the puddle and its microcosmos of life. Like all studies of nature, mine was not without its problems of objectivity. As the drought took hold, the waters receded, lower and lower and lower, until the very existence of the puddle was threatened. But far more than mere insects were caught up in this ontological battle between life and death. So too was my incipient new nature writing book. Should I remain a non-interventionist observer and watch the life that teemed inside it, midges, larvae, blowflies on the dog die out? Or should I become a god and intervene, saving my precious creation a year in a puddle? Or could this very catastrophe turn that book into a bestseller? It is quandaries such as this that keep the new nature writer with attitude up at night. We might look like heartless fools from the outside, but on the inside, us double N, double W Ayers are riven with self-doubt and fraught with concern for our work. A late night trip with a watering can to the puddle and all was well again. Disaster struck. A summer storm had broken above my puddle, and its cupola-shaped hole now overfloweth, taking all the nascent life forms with it. From the kind of extreme drought conditions only a Ray Mears could survive, there was now a surfeit of water. It was everywhere. It was like being in a Charlie Patton song. The 
dog turd that had sustained this biome with its ecological diversity had almost completely washed away. The water nymphs I had seen bathing in this microcosmic lake were all at sea, running down the pavement towards the gutters and the passing traffic. There was nothing I could do to save them. They were destined to follow the path of least resistance and, like in so many Hollywood action thriller sequences, to slide down a series of sluice pipes in another world of a sewer system until finally they were flushed out to sea. The pool party was well and truly over. A year in a puddle had lasted about four months, give or take a month or two. I decided to do a McFarlane and add a liberal sprinkling of verse to the text with lots of space around the poems, which really helped pad it out. I explain this in my submission as a hearkening after the interdisciplinary high bun of Japanese Zen poets Bashu and Issa, whose esoteric admixture of prose, haiku and travelogue created a vivid sense of wonder of their chance encounters with nature. Bollocks, was it? Here's an example. Oh, crunchy bar wrapper, dissipate in the fetid slime, but slowly, slowly. I was happy with the ending, though, which I felt had got to the very heart of the new nature writers with attitude movement I had started just a few months back on a whim, whilst in need of a quick buck. What some would mistake for a devil-may-care approach to the very definition of the word nature others would view as merely endemic of the extinction-infused moment I was writing in. For make no mistake, the Anthropocene is a literary scene like no other. In the end, my puddle was filled with the tears of failure. It's almost inevitable that some cunt on Twitter will offer up that fucking Beckett quote about trying and failing and then failing better as some sort of recompense, but honestly, how could I possibly fail any better than this? Anyway, here's that ending in full. One day, all of this will end. And nature too will end at some point in the future when people aren't around to call it nature. And what then? Oh, what dreams may come. But for now, I look down at my puddle, which is empty, and I cry.